Hello, I'm Dr. Joseph Kern, and welcome to A Radiant Moment. Get ready to receive helpful insights and a relevant word for today's world. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Now, let's listen in as we bring you a powerful and dynamic word for your life today. This is A Radiant Moment with Dr. Joseph Kern. Come on, let's pray the prayer we pray every week. Let's put our hands in our eyes. Say, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word of revelation. Open our eyes that we might have a revelation in the depth, the width, the length, and the height of your word. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Give the Lord a big hand and a high five to your neighbor. Come on. I got to be honest with you. I'm stoked, if I can use that old word, about today. I mean, I just came back from vacation, so I'm ready. And today's dialogue is Rapture to the Throne Part 2, Meeting God, Elders, and Angels. We covered verse 1 last week. It took a whole hour to cover one verse. We'll do the rest of chapter 4 today. And this is going to be good. Because I'm speaking, no, because God's word is beautiful. And you know what? One day you're going to see God. And guess what today is? An introduction to what he looks like and what you will see the moment your eyes depart from this dimension to the next. So I'm going to give you what John says, what you will see one day when you go right before the throne. Amen? So let's start with Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And it's the divinely inspired outline given by Jesus himself to John the Apostle. Write these things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So he's commanded by Jesus to do a three-part writing according to this outline. He says, write the things which you have seen. In chapter 1, he sees Jesus, and he writes down the vision. And then he says, now write the things which are. And in this day, there were these seven churches. And so in chapters 2 and 3, he writes to the seven churches that are alive during that time, which are prophetic for the next 2,000 years of history, even to our day, speaking to us. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. And then he says, then write these things which shall be hereafter. In Greek, he said metatauta. And in chapter 4, it starts with metatauta. Hereafter, And then that same verse ends with metatauta. So he says that word twice so that you know here is the things that will happen hereafter. And hereafter what? I believe the church age. So the rapture of the church is symbolized by the Apostle John in Revelation 4.1. Let's look at this. Revelation 4.1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as if it were a trumpet talk with me, which said, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter, metatauta. So here the Apostle John is translated into heaven, and it says twice after this, after what? After the church age. Chapters 2 and 3 was all about the church, and then immediately he says hereafter. He starts with metatauta, and then he says now, here are the things that shall be hereafter. So in Revelations 4 through 22 is all about the seven-year tribulation. And chapters four and five is all about the throne. We're only on chapter four, our second week on chapter four. So I believe that John being caught up in verse one is symbolic foreshadowing of the church being caught up to the throne right before the tribulation. Are you following me? Amen. So let's go to verse two of chapter four, verse two. And we're going to talk about he who sits on the throne, the description of God. 
Revelation 4, 2 through 3. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight that looked unto an emerald, a sight like unto an emerald. It's fascinating because in this verse, verse 2, John says he was caught up in the spirit. He was in the spirit. I find this phrase unusual because he had already said that in the book of Revelation that he was in the spirit. And now all of a sudden he finds himself transported before the throne and he says, and I was in the spirit. Now, was he in his body or does he use that phrase again? Because now he wasn't in his body, but in his spirit form, I don't know. The Bible's not clear, but it's interesting that he would use that phrase twice. We find that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, when he was caught up to the third heaven, he also was not sure whether he was in his body or spirit form. He says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows such one was caught up to the third heaven. So I just, again, find that phraseology interesting. I was in the spirit because he was already in the spirit. But I want you to notice that the focus point of the next two chapters, chapters four and five, is the throne in heaven. It's all about the throne. The word throne in chapter four alone is used 12 times in this chapter. The throne is what captures John's attention first. It's what he notices first. It is the centerpiece of the vision. John is fixated on the occupied throne and everything is described as in relationship to to that throne. And if you miss anything that I'm saying today, you know what the whole idea of today's sermon is? Is that God is on the throne. That no matter what you're going through, God is still on the throne. Maybe someone's about to die in your family. I got news for you. God is still on the throne. Maybe you just heard your spouse saying she don't love you anymore. Guess what? God is still on the throne. No matter what you're going through, the revelation of chapter four and five is that God rules. He's on the throne and he's not nervous. We don't read that he's looking at Michael and says, oh my God, can you believe what's happening on the earth? And he's shaking like an old man. No. He's confident. He's strong. Thunderings and lightning bolts are coming from his throne. And that's what God wants you to see. That's why the first thing he talks about before the tribulation, because God is about to release the greatest judgments on the earth. But what does he show you? He's on the throne in control of it all. No matter what happens on the earth, God is on the throne. Amen. Amen. Now there's a description of him, God who sat on the throne. John describes him as looking like a jasper and sardine stone combined. Now, John describes the jasper stone later as a crystal clear. It's similar to a diamond which refracts all the colors of the spectrum and wonders brims. Look at Revelation 21, 11. And having the glory of God and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So the immediate thing when he sees the throne, the first thing he recognizes is God. And what does he describe? He said he looks like diamonds with all the lights coming, flashing right through it. God, man, that's the first thing you're going to see. And you know what's fascinating? People go, what color is God? What do you mean what color? He's light. Light in a prism, put it, and it's what? All the colors. He's black. He's white. He's brown. He's green, if there's anything green in the universe. Come on, talk to me. He's red. He's all the colors. We are, and when we talk about the color of people, we're just one of the reflections of his brilliance. Come on, talk to me. That's beautiful. 
But not only that, he described him as a sardine stone. And a sardine stone, is it's a fiery red ruby stone named for the city from which it's found, which is Sardis. Remember, one of the letters was written to Sardis, and it was known for the ruby red. So here he's all the, he looks like a diamond with the rainbow flashing through, but then there's this red overview, and probably symbolic of redemption of the blood of the lamb. Amen? But this is what he looks like. Now, here's something fascinating. We find in Exodus 28, verse 17 through 21, that both these stones, the Sardis stone and also the um, Jasper stone, are found on the breastplate, of the, uh, the breastplate of the high priest. Again, and they were the first and the last gems on the breastplate. If you're not familiar with that, God had a breastplate of these 12 different stones, and each represented one of the children of Israel, and they were on his breastplate so that he could remember to pray for them. They would be continually on his heart. But isn't it interesting that the Jasper represented the tribe of Benjamin, and his name means the son of my right hand. Sardius represents Reuben, which means behold a son. So when you see the, the, the Jasper, it's actually a color speaking to you, look at the son of my right hand. When you see the red, you're, he's actually, it's a light color speaking a prophecy of behold my son. Isn't it interesting that in chapter 4, it's all about the father on the throne? But in chapter 5, the son comes with the seven-sealed thing. And, he, and now it's all about, behold, my son. Look at the one who sits in my right hand. And those lights are prophesying his entry. Are you following me? Powerful stuff. I mean, I can't wait to go to heaven one day. Not today, Jesus, but one day. Amen. God is described in scriptures, isn't this fascinating, as wearing clothes of light. Look at Psalm 104.2. Who covereth thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like curtain. So here the book of Psalms says that God's clothes are light. And here that's exactly what John sees. In fact, many people misunderstand even the book of Genesis where you find Adam and Eve and people um, go, they were naked. Well, did you know they were always naked? But before their fall, they were clothed in light like God. The light dissipated the moment they dis disobeyed God. And that, what, they never had clothes, but they were covered in light like God, fully covered. And one with the light disappeared, they knew they did something out of order. Are you following me? Man, I, I, this is so awesome. In fact, we will return to that. But that's a whole other message. The Bible says, they that win souls will shine like the stars. Amen. And the Bible also tells in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells. He told his young son, Timothy, in the gospel that God dwells in a light that no man can approach. Check this out. Who only hath immortality, talking about the God on the throne, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So Paul, remember, he had been to the third heaven, so he knew. He says, when you look at God, he ha there's light shining from that no man can approach. No wonder when John describes him, notice it doesn't talk about his facial features because that light is so emanating, so powerful that you can't see those distinct features. Even with your heavenly new eyes, God is even greater than that. He's beyond the ability to see. All you see is the radiation of his glory. Man, this is good stuff. And then if that was enough, so we know God looks like this diamond shining in their brilliance with, with colors of the rainbow emanating from him. Well, then above him, the scripture says in chapter four, which we read that the throne was surrounded by a rainbow, write that down, with a strong emerald green hue emanating in brilliance. Now, this is fascinating because remember the rainbow 
is a reminder of God's covenant with man through Noah to never what? Destroy the earth by water again. That's found in Genesis 9, 11 through 17. And here is the rainbow. The first thing he sees is God. And then he notices the rainbow. And he knows that that represents the promise that God will never flood the earth again. That's why I don't understand Christians who are into this global warming thing. You know, the whole idea of global warming, right? It's that it's melting the ice caps and it's going to flood the earth. Hello, have you not seen the rainbow? I don't worry about global warming because the Bible says that there will never flood the earth again like that. What you need to be worried is about a global fire. The second destruction will be by fire, not by water. So you can stop worrying about global warming. Turn up your air conditioner. Amen. Praise the Lord. So many things can be solved if we just read the Bible. Amen and amen. Amen. Let me continue here. Now, here's what's interesting. Judgment is about to fall starting in chapter 6. Actually, even verse 5 when he starts opening those seals. But the rainbow above his throne is a reminder that God is merciful even when he judges. That's why that rainbow's there. Habakkuk 3.2 says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. So the scripture tells us that when God's in wrath and the tribulation is God's wrath on earth, he says he'll remember mercy. So how does he do that? He makes sure the rainbow's before him so that, did you know the book of Revelation could have been worse? But because of that rainbow and the reminder of his mercy and wrath, he even shortens the days according to the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? This is awesome. Usually a rainbow appears after the storm, but here we see it before the storm. Again, so that God could be merciful in the midst of his wrath. Amen? And all of a sudden, we're introduced to 24 elders. We met God, now we're introduced to the elders. Imagine you're John, and this happened to you. Revelation 4.4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had in their heads crowns of gold. Can you picture these people? If not, we have a picture in your um, PowerPoint there. Everyone wants to know, who are these 24 elders? Well, I find it fascinating that these 24 elders are worshiping God day and night. And it's interesting that in 1 Chronicles 24 and Luke 1, 5 through 9, that you find that there are actually 24 courses of the priesthood. And they represent the priests. And what they did was they actually were scheduled out. There were 24 different courses, different groups. And their job was to worship God 24-7 on the earthly tabernacle. Amen. Now, we can find out who these people are. It's not hard to figure it out. Jesus promised his own disciples that they would sit on thrones in his kingdom. Look at Matthew 19, 20. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also so sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we know at least 12 of those thrones are set aside for who? The 12 disciples. Now, also, Jesus promises the church, us, that if we overcome, that we would also sit on one of those thrones. Look at Revelation 3.21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame, and I am set down with my Father in his throne. And Ephesians 2, 6, look what it says. And he hath raised us up together and has made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul, by revelation, says, even though you are on earth, some of you in the next, in infinity, are already sitting on thrones in heavenly places. Come on, that's heaven stuff. 
Now, why would God give one of us a throne? Because in Revelation 1.6, it is said he has made us kings and priests. How many of you know that if you're a king, you have to have a throne? And since your kingdom ain't on earth, your throne is where? In heaven. Revelation 17.14, it says they shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords, and he's the king of kings. And it's speaking about you and me. Look at your neighbor right now and say, hi, Lord. Look at your other neighbor and say, hi, king. Because he's the king of what? And he's the Lord of what? He's not the Lord of paupers. It doesn't say the king of kings and the Lord of paupers. No, it says the Lord of lords. Amen. Lord Kevin, it's good to see you today. Lord Preston, Pastor Dre Poupon, would you please? <laughs> Come on. So you know who these elders are. Who are they? Me and you. The clothing of these elders reveal who they are. White raiment, is, which they're wearing, is promised to the overcoming church people. Revelation 3, 5. And then in Revelation 2, 10, crowns are promised to the overcomers in the church. For none of those things which shall, you shall suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, but that ye may be tried, that ye shall have tribulation ten days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee what? So he's speaking to the church in Revelation 2, 3. Hey, I'm going to give crowns to those overcome. All of a sudden, in chapter 4, you see these elders with crowns. Who is that? Come on, put the picture together. It also tells you where the church is while the judgments are being released in heaven. We're in heaven. The overcomers are in heaven while the tribulation is taken on earth. Come on, talk to me. Now, if you want to be here, well, okay, well, be here. But I don't want to be here. Amen. So these 24 elders are none other than the Old and New Testament redeemed saints. From the Old, 12 from the Old, 12 from the New. They somehow represent, that number represents all of us. Does that make sense? Now Romans 8, 17, look at this. If children, talking about you, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The Bible says we're joint heir with Christ. You know what that means? Everything God gave him is mine, is yours. His throne is mine because it's given to him, and I'm a joint heir with Christ. You ever see those people win these big lotteries, and then they find out someone paid half the money, so now they're a joint heir, and they have to give half their money away? Hello, that's Jesus. We're joint heirs with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. You can't reign sitting on a normal chair. Amen. I know we're about to buy these little black chairs, but in heaven, I got me a throne. Come on, talk to me. That no man can buy. Now, here's the part. I hope you're paying real, this is really good stuff. Because one day you're going to visit. I'm giving you a preview of that, your first, what the first thing you're going to see once you close your eyes in this dimension and go to the next. Even though I told you who these people are, the 24 elders, listen closely. Who they are isn't, isn't important at all. It's why they are there, which is important. And I won't reveal that until the next week because they serve a critical function. It's not... Who do they represent? No, it's why are they there? And I will tell you next week. Now, all of a sudden, John is caught up, and he hears these proceedings from the throne. Listen to this, Revelation 4, 5. Pay real close attention. And out of the throne proceedeth lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Check this out. The moment John goes before the throne, he then notices not just the colors emanating, but he knows these seven burning lamps, these seven fires. And then all of a sudden, he hears so much sound. He hears thunders. He hears lightnings. Now, you know what? Think of this. Most of you think somehow when you go to heaven, we think of heaven as being a, ster- a sterile place, a quiet place, a place where you go, oh, you're going to hear, oh, right? 
and that somehow it's really calm and peaceful. That's John heard noises that were overwhelming to the senses. In fact, when I went to bed last night, I was so afraid that when I taught this, that you would somehow have not the right representation of heaven. I said, you know what, Lord? There were lightnings, there were thunderings, there were fires. I'm going to get out. And I got out of bed at 2 in the morning, and I said, I'm going to put them all together and hear what that sounds like. And then I go, wow. It gives you a whole dimension of what, how many want to hear what I put together? So this is what heaven sounded like to John. Play it. All I did was put the sounds that the Bible says were there. And man, play that again. I want to hear that one more time, man. I, I took me to a place. That's God's voice right there emanating. Shofar. There we go. Thank you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, God's not deaf and he's not nervous. In other words, it's a party up there. And I want you to hear that because sometimes, oh, lightnings and thunders, oh, isn't that cute? No, 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 listen what's going on up there. In fact, check this out. Lightning, thunderings, and voices are in fire are reminiscent of God's fearful presence at Mount Sinai. Let's look at Exodus 19:18. And Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and smoke there ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Exodus 20, verse 18 through 19 continues, and all the people that saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain shake and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood far off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Literally, when God gave them the Ten Commandments, he literally allowed his throne to descend upon Mount Sinai. Come on. And they literally begin to hear the sounds of heaven. And those sounds of heaven were so overwhelming to this party people, because this was like the party, that even they said, do you speak to us, Moses? We don't want to hear God's throne because we might die. And how many you know that it's loud when you think you're about to die from that rock concert? Come on, talk to me. And that's what John is immediately hears, the same thing that the children of Israel heard 3,000 years previous to that time, or 2,000 years previously. Now, lightnings, thunderings, voices, and fire, these emblems communicate, whenever you see them in the Bible, they communicate the awesome character of his being, that God's awesome. But they also represent that judgments are about to begin. So the very nature that John's hearing this means God's about to release some judgments. And sure enough, three other places further on during the seven-year tri tribulation, every time these four things are mentioned, guess what's happening? Earthquake and judgments. Look at Revelation 8, 5. And the, and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices, thunderings, and lightnings, and an earthquake. Look at Revelation eleven nineteen. 19. The temple of God was opened in heaven. There was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, an earthquake and gray hell. Revelation 16, 18. And there were voices, thunders, and lightnings. Notice the same word. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not seen since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. Boom! Man, play that sound again. I want to hear that again. 
Come on. ready to play that again. Amen. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And every time those three judgments, that's what they begin to hear, which you just heard. Heaven is rowdy, man. And we're there. We're there. That crowd is us. <sighs> Come on. Oh, man. The Holy Spirit is seen as the seven spirits of God in Revelation 1-4. And Isaiah 11-2 shows him as the seven spirits. How cute that is. Now, he appears before the throne as seven burning lamps. Why does he appear differently? Because it's a different representation of who he is. He can be a cute little spirit. He can be a little, nice little dove. But when he comes as a burning lamp, be ready. And, man, it took me hours. What I'm going to give you in one minute, you get it in, in a minute. It's not fair. <laughs> I asked the Lord, I go, why seven burning lamps? And he says, because there's seven revelations of fire in my scripture. And he says, well, I'm not going to tell you where they're. So I had to look them up. So I found them. Are you ready? But before I give that to you, you need to know that God is described as an all-consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, Hebrews 12.29, who's the first person of the Godhead. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, his eyes are described as a flame of fire. Amen? Revelation 1.14, and then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is described as a devouring fire. That's Exodus 24.17. Amen? Now, let me give you the seven revelations of fire. Why John sees seven lamps of fire? Because it has to do with us. The first thing, because how many of you know we are the container of the Holy Ghost? Amen? For you are the temple of the what? The Holy Spirit. These seven things should be in your life. If they're not, then you have somehow limited the Spirit of God in your life. Listen to this. Number one, fire burns. That's found in Matthew 3, 12. And it burns because it's burning the refuse or the garbage. How many know when the Holy Ghost comes to your life, he wants to burn the garbage out of your life? All that garbage you watch, see, hear, I mean, he wants to burn it out. And then the second revelation of fire is found in Exodus 24, 17. I'm not reading the verse for time's sake, but it, it devours, fire devours, it consumes. In fact, it says, in the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain, the eyes of the children of Israel. In other words, wherever God shows up, he consumes everything. In other words, he takes up the, in fact, don't you remember the scripture when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up? And the Bible says his train, his tucks, tails, if you will, it filled the whole temple. I don't know about you, but when I went to my prom night, my I had a tuck tail and it went down here. The Bible says you can't go anywhere without touching his tuck tail. Come on, it fills the temple. He, he consumes the place. In other words, let me explain this to you. There's not a place once he's there, he fills it, he fills up the room. What does that mean in regards to he wants to come into your life. He wants to fill up every room, but you've limited him to a little closet. You've limited him to a little arm, a little foot, a little thought. And God says, I'm a devouring fire. I fill up every place I come into. Are you following me? Some of us need to repent just for not allowing God to be a devouring fire in our life, to take up all the space. Number three, fire cleans. It, it literally means to be uncontaminated. You find that in Numbers chapter 31, verse 23, that God wants to take all the contamination, and he wants to get rid of that too. Amen? Number four, fire purifies. In Psalms 12, verse 6, it talks about how it strains or it extracts. In other words, when the fire God comes to your life, all that will be left, it will literally, it's like a, he's a restrainer. Only the pure part of you will stay remaining. All the other crap is, is literally extracted from you. Come on. 
Some of us need to go through the straining power of the Holy Ghost, amen? Because we're half dead, half alive, half holy, half unholy. And he says, no, let me be the restrainer. Let me, let me purify you, amen? Number five, fire refines. And, and, and we need to read this one. Malachi 3.2 says, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a, like fuller's soap. So here we find that this, the fifth revelation of that lamp of fire is that one of them represents he's a refiner. And he uses the term fuller's soap. You know what that is? This is interesting. Fuller's soap was used by launderers to whiten clothes specifically. So what is the Lord, what is the Holy Spirit's job to do in your life? He's like a fuller soap. His job is to make sure that your clothes are white before the Lord. He's like a fuller soap. Come on, amen. Some of us need some Holy Ghost soap in our mouth, Holy Ghost soap in our feet, in our arms, underarms, everything. Come on, talk to me. There's a smell and we need to get rid of it. Amen. The sixth revelation. Now you got to remember, he's seen seven lamps of fire and all those colors are, 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 are emblematic, they, 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 they're an emblem, they represent what I'm telling you right here. The sixth revelation of the fire is that it tries. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, it talks about how, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. The word tried means to test, to examine, to prove. The fire of God's spirit, he will test to make sure you're where you need to be. He will allow you to go through some temptations, some trials, to see if you're ready for that next promotion. Come on. That's what the fire got. You know, we say that when you're going, I'm in the fire. You are. That's God's fire. Don't get out until he tells you to get. Some of you try to get out early, but it's too early. You need to get a little bit more sunburn. Come on, talk to me. You're in that fire for a purpose. God's preparing you for something. If you get out early, he goes, all right, then I can't give you the blessing. You're not ready. You can't stand the heat. Come on, talk to me. Not all fires of the enemy. Some fires from God himself. He's an all-consuming fire. The seventh revelation, I love this, is that fire protects. And Zechariah 2.5 says, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So fire is a protector. It will surround you like a, like a wall, like a city wall, like a, like a fortress. Amen? In fact, the children of Israel experienced this when they were released from 400 years of slavery. And Moses and three million Jews were about to cross the Red Sea, but Pharaoh was going to kill them all. And the only thing that kept Pharaoh from killing them is that the Holy Spirit descended like a pillar of fire and divided the children of Israel from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh could not touch because the Holy Ghost was a wall of fire around them. Come on. Are you following me? Amen. And you know what the Holy Ghost did? The moment the, the, the wall, the, the, the sea parted, parted ways, he allowed the children of Israel to go. And then he, the Holy Spirit lifted up that fire. The Pharaoh and his horses began to chase the children of Israel. But by the time they got across, now he released that water and all Pharaoh was damaged, was killed, was destroyed. And that's the seventh revelation that the Holy Spirit wants to be a wall of fire protecting you, protecting your children. Amen. Isn't this good stuff? You won't get this by just reading. You have to study the scripture and find out what all those seven flames represent. So when you see lightning and you hear thunder, that means a storm is not far behind. And that's what's happening here. The greatest storm that's ever hit humanity is about to be released. And then all of a sudden he sees a sea of glass, Revelation 4, 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto a crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, in order to understand the sea of glass, because it's actually, it, is, it represents on earth 
the brazen altar. So in other words, you don't even know what this means. It doesn't even mean nothing to you right now by telling you there's a sea of glass unless you know about the tabernacle. So now I have to teach you on the tabernacle for you to understand what I just said because no one said hallelujah because you don't even know what that means. Which is why I said I'm going to teach you the whole Bible using the book of Revelation as my text. So let's turn to Revel or Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 through 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So now we find out that the earthly tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses in the day of Israel's early history, and later the temple, were a shadow, our pattern of the heavenly sanctuary, which John was seeing right now. So let's look at the tabernacle. Let's look at a picture of the tabernacle so you can understand what John just saw. The tabernacle was the portable, earthly dwelling place of God amongst the children of Israel, which was their center of their worship in the days of Moses and even later on. Its detailed instructions are found in Exodus 25 through 27 and chapters 35 through 38. There's no more, I mean, no more chapters are dedicated to any other subject more than the tabernacle. Obviously, God wants us to understand the tabernacle because there's about six chapters dedicated alone to it. But let me give you a quick overview so you can understand what John's seen. Its purpose, the tabernacle, according to the scripture, was to be a place where God would meet and dwell with his people. Look at Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So they were to make this, which was a pattern of the heavenly throne, so that God can meet and dwell with them. So obviously, what is the heavenly version for? It's a place where you can meet and you can what? Dwell with him. Okay? It consists of three parts. The earthly tabernacle, an outer court, which you can see there, a holy place, and the holy of holies. It had seven pieces of furniture, and you know seven is the number of completion. And this seven pieces of furniture helped facilitate the worship of God. They had the brazen altar, the bronze laver, you had the golden lampstand. You had the table of showbread, the incense altar. You had the Ark of the Covenant, and you had the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments, and its lid called the mercy seat is where God would dwell above it and speak to his people. Look at Exodus 25, 22. And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandments, into the children of Israel. So Moses was commanded to build the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, you know what? I have a video. Can we play that? Let's look at the mercy seat. I want you to see this really quick. Let's play the video. I know it's a little early. Let's go ahead and play. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. 
from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So the ark of the covenant specifically above the mercy between the cherubims was for one purpose so that God could meet and talk with you. And why? Because that was a picture of when you go to heaven, what's the first thing he sees? We haven't got there yet, but you see these cherubim and God speaking from the midst of them. Now, so the earthly temple, our tabernacle, is a picture of the heavenly sanctuary. So let's talk about that for a minute so you understand the rest of the pictures. You had priests in the earthly temple. In the heavenly sanctuary, we were introduced to elders who are known as kings and priests in Revelation 1.6. In the earthly temple, you had the brazen altar. In heaven, in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, you have the altar with the martyrs. In the earthly temple, you had the bronze laver. In Revelation 4, you have the sea of glass, which I'll explain more in a moment. In the earthly temple, you had the seven-branched candlestick. In the heavenly sanctuary, you had the seven lamps of fire before the throne. Come on, talk to me. And then in the earthly tabernacle, you had the table of showbread. I could not find anywhere in Revelation. It was the one piece of furniture that was missing. And I couldn't find one commentator who, could, who knew what it was. And then I had to ask the Holy Ghost, are you ready for this? He told me what it was. You find the answer in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, where it says, the church is my bread. So... The multitude of people before the throne in Revelation 7, 9 is the table of showbread. That table of showbread, there was 12 pieces of bread put out every week that represented the people of God before the throne. Come on, talk to me, because we are one bread. When we take communion, it's symbolic. Christ is the bread, but together we're what? One bread. Are you following me? This is good stuff. In the earthly temple, you had the incense altar. In Revelation 8, 3, 5, you have the incense altar where the angels are answering the prayer requests. In the earthly temple, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what? In the heavenly sanctuary, we have the Ark of the Covenant also, Revelation eleven nineteen. 19. And then in the earthly temple, you had the cherubim over the mercy seat. We just saw the video. But here in the heavenly sanctuary, you have four living creatures around the throne, four cherubim. In the earthly temple, you have the Holy of Holies. But in the heavenly sanctuary, it's the throne of God. Amen? Now, to go over that so you understand, this is a, John is seeing the tabernacle, but the true form. In the tabernacle, you had the bronze cleansing basin for the priests to ceremonially cleanse themselves from the judgment of their sin. It was called the bronze sea or the bronze laver. And this is what John talked about. He says, and there was a sea of glass. That bronze laver in the tabernacle represents the sea of glass in heaven. Let me explain it because many of you go, okay, big deal. Well, let me explain what this means. In Exodus 38, 8, you need to write down that scripture. We learn, quote, and he made the laver of brass and the foot of brass of the looking glasses of the woman assembling. Isn't it interesting that this was the only furniture in the tabernacle that was literally made out of the brass looking glasses of the women. Women in those days didn't have mirrors. They had breasts and it was that brass that was used for that labor. And you're saying why? Because here's what would happen. The first instrument that they would come to was the altar where they burnt the sacrifice and they would have blood all over them. So they would then go next to the brazen um, labor, if you will, that had this water and they had to be able to see themselves in the reflection so they knew where to take the water and to cleanse themselves. Did you just hear what I said? 
So it had a reflection quality. So, oh, I got blood here, I got blood here. And they would take that water and they would cleanse themselves. Now, isn't it interesting that the idea communicated in this and in, in, in that the priests were able to look at the reflection, the bronze labor to see where they needed to apply their contained water in order to cleanse themselves, that the word of God reflects the areas of your life that need cleansing. That's what this communicating. That the word of God can tell you where you need to be cleansed. Because in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26, Paul compares the word of God to the laver. Look what he says. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of his word. In other words, the brazen laver was bronze so that you could see where you need to apply the water to your uncleanness. The word of God is the only thing that can show you where you need to be clean. It will reflect your true nature. The bronze laver was made out of bronze because bronze represents judgment. Come on, oh, I, I hope you just heard what I said. You're about to shout if you understand the revelation I'm about to give you. In, on earth, it was bronze because no matter how many sacrifices you made, no matter how many days you live, you make a mistake every day. You have to apply the blood of Jesus every day because you make mistakes and you have to know where. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word. Why? Because the word shows you where you need to apply that blood. But in heaven, it's a sea of glass. It's not made out of bronze. Why? Because all judgment has been taken away. And now when you look at the glass, you see a reflection, but you need no blood because it's been done away with. You now look like Jesus. Hallelujah. The reflection you see is that of purity. Come on. That's why the sea of glass is amazing. John's like, wow, I see my reflection and I'm glorious. Oh my God. I hope you just heard what I said. That's why I have to go over the tabernacle because you don't even know. Moment I say, I know what that means. You don't, unless you know the tabernacle. That's why I come every week. I'm, we're going to go through every one of these verses. Isn't that beautiful? If you want to know where bronze is symbolic of judgment, for those who are extra, you know, you're like the real geeks like me. Judges 16, 21, 2 Kings 25, 7 tells us about how bronze is symbolic of judgment. Now, this sea of glass, our crystal pavement, it literally serves as the floor of God's throne and it stretches out like a great glistening sea. In fact, even Ezekiel saw this sea of glass. Look at Ezekiel 122. In the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creatures was as the color of a terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. Isn't it interesting that both John and Ezekiel described the sea in heaven as having characteristics like the atmosphere of earth? The phenomenon of the aurora borealis, also known as the northern lights, can look like crystal in the atmosphere. Look at that. And then if you look at the next picture, it looks like crystal mingled with fire. Can you imagine? Now, this is how God's floor looks like. Can you imagine? You've seen God emanating with all these lights, rainbow above him with the red hue, and then on his ground is like the northern lights at your feet, and it's called a sea of glass. I mean, this is beautiful. I find it interesting that when God asks, by the way, that description of crystal mingled with fire, you find it in Revelation 15:2. for those taking notes. When God asked Moses to present the elders of Israel before him on the holy mountain, 
Isn't it interesting that the elders observed the beautiful stones under Jehovah's feet? Look at Exodus 24.10. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Blue is the most popular, well-known color in sapphires. But sapphires come in almost any color of the rainbow. So his pavement, which looks like a sea of glass, literally emanates with the colors of the rainbow also. Isn't that beautiful? Play that sound again. I want to hear that sound. I told you to be ready. Come on, come on. I want to hear it. There we go. Mm. Now we're introduced to the four living creatures. Are you guys getting bored yet? This is good stuff. This is the first thing you're going to see when you enter heaven. And you don't want to be shocked. What, didn't Pastor Joseph tell you about this place? <laughs> Revelation 4, 7 through 8. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had the face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Hallelujah. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying, holy, holy. Holy Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and is to come. Isn't it fascinating that when we compare Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, chapter 10, 21 through 22, we understand that these creatures to be cherubims. Cherubims are spectacular angelic beings that surround the throne of God. Look at Ezekiel 10, 20 through 21. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river of Chabar, and I knew that they were the cherubim. Each one had four faces apiece, and every one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. It's interesting, though. There's a difference between the cherubim that Ezekiel saw and the cherubim that John saw. The Ezekiel cherubim, for those taking notes, they had four faces the right side of their face was the face of a man and a lion. Please remember this. The left side of their face was an ox and an eagle. So they had four faces on one head. Some scholars say that the four faces resemble the main constellations during the four seasons. The lion, Leo in winter. The ox, Taurus in spring. The eagle, Aquila near Aquarius summer. Um, the human face is Scorpio, representing humanity in ancient times fall. Some experts say they represent the four directions or the four winds. You can read ancient documents like 3 Enoch 21.1 where it says that. I'm going to tell you what I believe it means. And so they had these four faces. They had four wings. They had hands like a man. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, 13 through 14, 14, excuse me, they appear like fire and lightning. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm mixing lightning with the words. Can you imagine seeing these creatures? And they, they look like lightning. And near them were wheels loaded with eyes. You can see those wheels above their heads. Now, the ones in the Revelation that John sees in chapter 4, their cherubims are described differently. They have one face, either that of a man, lion, ox, or eagle. So they only have one of those faces. There's four of them. But the cherubim and Ezekiel, they had all four faces. These angels in, in the Revelation 4, they have six wings, and they're covered with eyes. And the difference might be is that the cherubim that Ezekiel saw literally were under the throne. The cherubim that John saw were before the throne. Are you following me? Now, 
the cherubim were prominent in the tabernacle's holy of holies, a model of God's throne. You find in Exodus 25, 8 through 9, we just saw it where, remember, the, cher the cherubim were on the mercy seat and they faced one another. Again, why? Because it's a picture of God's throne. There were two golden cherubims face each other in the mercy seat. That's found in um, Exodus 25, 17 through 22. The cherubim were part of the artwork on the tent curtains of the tabernacle, Exodus 26, 1. The cherubim were placed on the veil that divided the holy place and the holy of holies, Exodus 21, excuse me, Exodus 26, 31. Anything to do with the holy of holies, the cherubim were a part of. Now, there are multitude of eyes because they had a lot of eyes. It indicates, listen to this, that these living creatures are not blind instruments or robots. They know and they understand. Whenever you see eyes, it's symbolic of understanding and wisdom. These beings of incredible intelligence and understanding live their existence to worship God. Listen to what I'm about to say. All failure to truly worship God is rooted in the lack of seeing and understanding. When you don't worship God, you're telling me you do not have the ability to see because when you have the ability to see, it compels you to worship day and night because you can see the glory of God. But those that are blinded by their own failures, blinded by their own mistakes, blinded by this earth's glory, they fail to see and they're lacking eyesight. Their multitude of eyes indicates these living creatures, are, again, are not blind instruments, but they know and they understand. Historians write that the tribes of Israel were divided into four groups. Interesting, the 12 tribes. Each gathering under the banner, listen to this, of a lion, Judah on the east, as an ox, Ephraim on the west, a man, Reuben on the south, and the eagle, Dan on the north. After you just heard what I taught, even the children of Israel had these flags flying exactly like that around the tabernacle. Why? Because even that's a picture of the heavenly are you following me? Let's continue. This is amazing. The book of Numbers, chapter 2, verse 3, verse 10, verse 18, verse 25, mentions this organization of the tribes under these four heads, but does not mention the mascots of the tribal banners. The book of Numbers, chapter 2, goes on to say, listen to this, that each of the four sides were to be three tribes. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, numbering 186,400, were to camp on the east side and were known as the camp of Judah. What is the symbol, the end sign of Judah? The lion. Where were they, why were they on the east side when Jesus comes back, according to scripture, roaring with authority, he's going to come from the east. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, numbering 108, there's a reason why I'm giving you their numbers, 108,100 were to camp on the west side and were known as the camp of Ephraim. Their symbol was the ox. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, numbering 151,400 were to camp on the south side and were now known as the camp of Reuben. Their symbol was a man. Dan, Nephtali, and Asher, numbering 157,600, were to camp on the north side and were known as the camp of Dan. Their symbol was the eagle. Don't show the next picture yet. But with the largest number of people camped out on the east, the smallest number on the west, and almost an identical number on the north and south sides of the tabernacle, go ahead and show that picture. The configuration is that of a cross. If you were encamped among the tribes of Israel, all you would have seen is a bunch of people scattered everywhere. But when God looked down from heaven, he saw a cross. Show the next picture. Isn't that powerful? Again, why? Let me get off my notes for a minute. 
Because the ox, the eagle, the man, and what's the third one? The lion. They're on those four corners. They're in the heavens. Remember those cherubims? Had these faces? Because they represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. They represent his four characteristics. And scholars have always called Matthew the lion gospel. You know why? Because it starts with the genealogy of Jesus tied to the kings. Mark, it talks about him serving. He's serving left and right. So they called it the ox gospel. This is in history. Luke was a doctor and he wrote about the physicalities of Christ more than anyone else. So it's called the man gospel. It writes about the humanity of Jesus. And then John has been called the eagle because the eagles have great foresight. They can see far away. So it's symbolic of God's omniscience. It's, it's, it's symbolic of God being God, who he is. And notice how John starts off. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, first thing John tells you is that Jesus not only was the word, but he is God. So even before the earth was built, before the foundation of the earth, he created angels that depicted the gospels even before the gospel was written. Are you following me? These cherubim look like an ox, eagle, because the gospel was written in their face millions of years before Jesus would even walk on the planet. And then he had it shown in the tabernacle representing the Messiah is going to come and these is his four attributes. And even to remind the children, it looked like a cross because ultimately that's where his destination was. So when you see the four faces, when you hear that, that's what this is talking about. The four faces are important because they represent all animate creation in its utmost excellence. The lion is the mightiest of the wild animals. The ox is the strongest of domesticated animals. The eagle is the king of all birds. And man is the highest of all creation. I find it fascinating that when I was reading Genesis 9.10, that the four faces of the living creatures parallel God's statement in Genesis 9.10. His covenant is with, notice, in Genesis 9.10, there's four people, four things that God made the covenant of of the rainbow with. Noah, who is the face of a man, and then it says the fowl, which is the face of the eagle, and then it says the cattle, which is the face of a calf, and then it says the covenant was made with the beasts of the earth are the face of a lion. And no why, no wonder, when you go to heaven, you see these mighty cherubim. One looks like a lion, one looks like a man, one looks like an eagle, and one looks like a, a lion. Did I say that one already? Ox, sorry, ox. And then there's a big rainbow over them. Why? Because that covenant was made with all what they represent. Did you hear what I said? In other words, God has to fulfill his word because that covenant was made with all of these four mighty beings. God, that's just good stuff. Are you bored yet? Let's listen to Revelation chapter 4. Man, oh no, I got I, I no, I I can't. I need to I need to I need to tell you this. You notice that these living creatures are constantly worshiping God and they repeat they repeat the phrase holy, holy, holy. And they declare that the Lord God is almighty. The word is pantocrator, which means the one who has his hand on everything. 
which was, which is, which is to come, is another reference to God's eternal being, translating the thought behind Yehovah, I am that I am, in Revelation 1.8. But why do they keep saying, holy, holy, holy? Why do they, I mean, they've been saying it from the first days of infinity, and they continue, they'll continue on into infinity saying it. Why? Because number one, it's a description of God's tri-being. God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Holy Spirit is holy. But you would think after millions of years, and right now they're standing for God, and they're still saying, holy, holy, holy. Why is it they don't get bored? Because coming from the throne, emanating from the throne, these colors and voices is a continual, nonstop flow of revelation that blows their mind to the point where all they can say is, holy, Holy, did you just hear that? And they've been doing that for millions of years, and they will continue because God is so great. Remember, there's these voices that are coming. They are subject to him. And hearing, and every time they hear this voice, there's a new revelation they had never heard, and it blows their mind away. Can you imagine? See, you think heaven's boring. God is so awesome that even when you get to heaven, you think you can have a mind like God. No, you can't. Even your heavenly mind cannot hold or, or have a capacity to contain the greatness of God's mind. There's not. You cannot. And, and he's so exciting that he will never bore you. Some of you think heaven's boring. No, hell is boring because you burn there and you're by yourself. Heaven is eternal and you're constantly hearing new revelations. In fact, this is how awesome God is. I'm getting ahead, way ahead of myself. God is so awesome that after that, towards the end of the book of Revelation, he looks at you and me and says, you know what? Let's just do a new heaven and a new earth. How many times will he do that in infinity? I don't know. But that just tells me he has so many ideas. It will blow you away. No wonder why the cherubim are saying holy and then the elders instantly fall and they go, yeah, holy, holy, holy. Because they are now privy. They are now privy to the word of God to angels. And that counts. See, it's not like they're bored worshiping. What can you do when you hear something that's so amazing but say, man, you are the greatest. Let's listen to Revelation 4, 9 through 11. Let's hear this. Living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we find that the 24 elders are worshiping the throne God, and then the worship of the 24 elders is cued by the cherubim. Since the cherubim worship God day and night, so do the elders, Revelation 4.8. They worship, which means in the Greek to ascribe worth or worthiness to God. You might want to write this word down. It's a very interesting word for worship that they're doing. It's proskunu. Proskunu. It's translated to mean to kiss the hand in a token of respect. They're giving God proskunu. To be honest, you know where it really comes from? It comes from when a dog licks the hand of the master. And why does the dog lick the hand of the master? Because it wants a response. But there's a, listen to this. Proskunu to the ancient Persians, there were three modes of this type of worship. Listen to this. It was actually a salutation, a greeting when you would greet someone. Listen to this. 
when, you, when there were persons of equal rank, the way they would do proskunu was they kissed each other on the lips. So if, if there were people of equal rank, they'd kiss each other on the lips. When the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. Isn't that interesting? Listen to this, though. When one was inferior, he fell upon his knees and touched his forehead to the ground or prostrate himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior. So if you greeted someone who was greater than you, you instantly threw yourself down, put your forehead on the ground, and you would throw kisses. This is the type of worship that's happening in heaven. They realize they are far inferior to this being that sits on the throne. And they're throwing their kisses, but they don't just do that. The Bible says they cast their crowns. Wow, that's a whole nother level. Some people lived years to get that crown. And all of a sudden, when they see God in his glory, they go, we are so unworthy of any crown. And they cast those crowns before God says, this is, I had no part in this. This is your doing. I'm going to say something I wasn't planning on saying. People say there's no tears in heaven. But the Bible tells us the last tears are in heaven that are cried. And I honestly believe that those last tears that are cried in heaven, remember those 24 elders represent us. There will be a group of people. They're in heaven because they believed in Jesus, but they did absolutely nothing for the gospel. And you know why they're crying? They have nothing to hand to him. They look around while their neighbor's doing this, and you are just sucking air. You're just taking up space. And you realize, why did I waste my life? I have nothing to give the master. That's heavy stuff, right? I don't want to go to heaven and be, I want to hand him something. Even if it's a, you know, Burger King cat, cat or something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand him something, amen? And they worship him because of his creative power. For thou hast created all things. The fact that God is creator gives him all the right and the claim to everything because he created you. There's no argument. You do what he says because he created you. Even as the potter has all rights and claims over the clay. Look at Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. You can read that in Romans 9, 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessels unto honor and another unto dishonor? Jeremiah actually was told by God to go to the potter's house. That's why I gave you the scripture. He says, Jeremiah, and, and I believe this is what God was saying. Jeremiah, you don't really know how to follow me because you tell me when you're going to preach and when you're not. You tell, when I tell you to go, you fight with me all the time. He says, go to the potter's house. And he sees the potter. He's forming, nah, I don't like, he totally destroys what he, and then he takes that same pot, does it again. And he does it until he likes what he has. And he says, Jeremiah, do you notice that the, the clay doesn't argue with the potter? Doesn't shout from the shelf? It doesn't say, why did you make me like this? Doesn't say, why am I not prettier? Why am I not? It just accepts the fact that the potter made it and that's the end of it. And so all these elders, they're worshiping and they go, you deserve to do whatever you want to do in the next few chapters because you created all things. You are God. And who are we to question you? 
Isn't that heavy? I'd like to end with saying this. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but you either do it willingly or unwillingly. Isaiah 45, 22 through 23. Philippians chapter 2, 10 through 11 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some will do unwillingly, but you're going to do it. I think it's better to do it willingly. Some people are so good at conning. They're so good with their tongue lying. But when you stand before the Lord, can you speak greater than him? Is there anything you can say that he cannot do? I found it interesting. Y'all remember that movie, Bruce Almighty? Where he played God for a second and he tried to trick God by showing his fingers. And he actually, you know, he said, how many fingers do I have? And then the Lord made the fingers appear because he tried to pull a fast one. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. My point is this, is that when we stand before the throne, our slick talk don't mean anything. We stand before the throne and we just worship him. We adore him. We move on from eternity and hopefully we will have something to hand him in return for his gratefulness, for his wonderfulness in our life. This series is really sobering me. And even today when I came in, I worshiped like I hadn't in a long time because I realized, well, this is serious. We were even singing the same songs. They cast their crowns, right? We were singing these same songs, but was it with the same reverence that they had? Was it where you were on your ground throwing kisses to the one who deserves? I wasn't either. But I don't want to be afraid to do if I want to in this place, amen? I want to hear that sound one more time of heaven. And I want you, let's just close our eyes. Come on. Let's hear this one more time. Let's play it. your presence and we thank you for your love we thank you for your grace we thank you for everything that you're doing in this place father help us to move forward help us to be the body of christ that you called us to be and even at this time if there's someone in this place where if you're to die today you don't know where you would go that's not good you need to know for certain where you would go if you died jesus said i am the way i am the truth i'm the life and no man cometh unto the father but by me you're going to have to bow before him. But if you do it unwillingly, it's for naught. Your lot is hell. But if you do it willingly, bow before the knee. Bow your knee before the Lord Jesus today. Your answer is everlasting life. Your reward is everlasting life. If you would like to know before you left today, if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. You would like to know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt. Raise your hand right now and I'll pray with you. Is there anyone in here that needs to pray that prayer? Okay. 
I see your hand. I thank you. Can, can we all stand and let's pray this prayer together? For those who are watching online, this is sacred. Say, Father, I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins. The good, the bad, and the ugly of my life, I totally surrender to you. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And even now, he's knocking on the door of my heart. And I say, Jesus, by your spirit, come in, fill me, make me your child. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a big hand of praise. If you said that prayer for the first time, welcome to the body of Christ. That prayer just transported you from hell to heaven. And if you don't understand, just continue coming. Learn from the Word of God. Can I have my altar workers here? Here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna end with a prayer right now. But if for, I never want to be in so big a hurry that we don't have people who can be prayed for. That's why we're a church. So if there's anyone in here who has any type of prayer we need, when I say this prayer to dismiss, you can stay. You can have someone pray for you. What well, we're here for you. If you want to go home, go home. But don't forget prayer tonight. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before your presence right now. And we thank you for everything that you're doing. Come on, touch your neighbor. We pray for our neighbor. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would heal them, that you bring them to, to wholeness, to health. We break the curse of the enemy over their lives. And Father, we pray that we as a church would become more like you. Lord, I feel your presence in this place so strong right now. And I pray that my neighbor would feel that presence, would feel that God is there. We receive you. We love you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, give five people a high five. Let them know that they're loved. We thank you for your participation in another broadcast of A Radiant Moment. This broadcast is brought to you by the generous giving and donations of our listening audience. If this program has been a blessing to your life, you can help us expand our listening audience by giving a financial donation at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Simply click the online giving tab and fill out the amount God has placed in your heart. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Tune in next time as we bring another relevant and radiant word for your life today. Until next time, and remember, God loves you. Thank you.